Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Did everyone have a fun Halloween? Did you get your spooky out? I did the monster man. (laughs) And let me tell you, it was in (laughs) fact a graveyard smash. Graveyard smash. Absolutely. But it's a song about a song. You never actually hear the monster mash in the song. That's that's true. (laughs) Well, it's a song about a dance. Yeah, it's a song about a dance song. You're right. Because they started doing the Monster Mash. So, Josh, you'll actually love this as a little thing, you know, a little tidbit about the Monster Mash. The Monster Mash, okay, is called the Monster Mash because it is in the style of a very popular dance of that era called the Mashed Potato. Oh, I could do that or the twist. (laughs) So if you listen to the Mashed Potato and you, you can hear songs, you know, Da, 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 da. you know that that mashed potato kind of thing um you'll hear the tune that he took it off of i mean you know blues progression and everything else like that but it is a monster mashed potato that's that's the, what the the song and dance is, is uh based off of sounds like a so halloween I, themed item on mcdonald's menu <laughs> yeah no yeah, no yeah. let's be honest Come, kfc KFC. <laughs> I was I was going to go like Wendy's, but Wendy's doesn't do a lot of theme stuff. But I digress. Mm. We haven't even introduced the Which, episode, and we've already no. gone off on a tangent. So, <laughs> folks, I think you know what it's that so means. It's so unlike us. I, I don't... <laughs> I think you know what that means. We only let ourselves get off our very strict discipline every other mm. week. Mm. And that means it's time for another Journal Club! Yeah. 
This one is Santosh's science corner because he found all the stories. He did? I forget. <laughs> Wasn't one of them about snakes? No, no. It's it's not we're not herpetologists. We're studying herpes. Oh, isn't that what Harry Potter speaks? <laughs> That's parcel tongue. Stop it. I know you know that too. <laughs> but you're just becoming forgetful in your old age. It's a good thing there's no disease that causes that sort of forgetfulness. Oh, yeah. Isn't there? Yeah, yeah. This is this is hard to segue into right now, Josh, because at some point then I have to accuse you of having Alzheimer's. And it's going to go one of two ways. Either it's going to be very sad, or this is going to just be a riff for you where you frustrate me for the rest of this episode. God damn it. So moving on, can <laughs> herpes cause Alzheimer's? <laughs> that was the podcast equivalent of a YouTube jump cut. because you were expecting everything but a complete and utter non sequitur (laughs) can herpes cause alzheimer's so this is a really important question and let me say that first of all this is going to be my research pathway in uh, the coming months and the coming years i study you're done with toxoplasma no no it's the interesting thing so i've i'm still studying toxoplasma gondii and what is happening is that in the alzheimer's community they were having just a devil of a time trying to pin down the reasons behind why alzheimer's even happens okay the prevailing theory all the way up till now is something called amyloid theory right which is just you accumulate enough Uh, beta amyloid plaques and those build up and build up and build up and then you cause problems with neurons and degeneration and finally you get alzheimer's but the problem was the correlation between amyloid and alzheimer's was poor and you couldn't really find out if the the amyloid actually caused the alzheimer's because there are people who actually have amyloid plaques but no alzheimer's and it was becoming frustrating. And finally, the uh, National Institutes of Aging, or the NIA, went ahead uh, and said, you know what, let's just send a call out because there's more and more data actually showing that this is not just an amyloid problem, that there is another etiology behind Alzheimer's. And they said, calling anybody and everybody who works with any infectious diseases, can you please investigate whether or not infectious pathogens are linked to Alzheimer's disease. And one of the front runners for the cause, um, or at least a correlation, a tight correlation with Alzheimer's disease was herpes simplex. So that was the start of all of this. So yes, Josh, so herpes, herpes simplex, which we usually think of as exclusively a disease that you see on the skin, whether it's a cold sore on your lips, one classical presentation, or genital herpes, which we think of as a sexually transmitted infection. But it turns out, no, um, herpes viruses as a family, so herpes simplex, varicella zoster, cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr, all of these are really Also important. known more commonly yeah. as chicken pox, mono... Yes. yeah there you go so come on nerd i know i'm so sorry don't forget our listeners at home (laughs) 
right. So all of these viruses have a very interesting property. They have latency, meaning that once you catch this virus, it stays with you forever. And a lot of the time it integrates into your uh, chromosomal DNA. Even if it doesn't, it stays latent in some sort of a cell. And so that's how chickenpox, varicella, turns into shingles later on down the road, a zoster. And why HSV or herpes simplex can recur over and over and over because it hides. So HSV, we know, is neurotropic. It likes nerves. In fact, it hides in you know part of the spinal cord. When like a snake. It's, yeah, just like a snake. Just like a snake. That's where the name can no, I don't know that. <laughs> so it, it hides in there, but we weren't sure if it actually gets to the brain. And we actually had to do a lot of work. And this latest study, Josh, uh, was on October 11th, uh, 2021 in the Journal of Neurovirology. <laughs> yes, ladies and gentlemen, there is a journal just for viruses in the brain. Absolutely. So we thought it was latent. We have now a body of work showing that, yes, even when HSV is latent, it is well correlated and causes a higher risk. Uh, if people who have herpes have about three times the risk of people who don't have HSV-1 for having Alzheimer's disease down the road. But again, with the amyloid theory, or as with the amyloid theory, we didn't have a good cause. We didn't have a good reason for why does this happen. So this paper actually, Josh, was to actually go in and try to show on a cellular le- cellular level and a microbiological level why is it that HSV can be a cause for Alzheimer's disease. So that's what this kind of landmark paper was. So two follow-ups. One is herpes and herpetology do share the same root, and that's the Greek herpene, which mm. means to crawl. So the study of oh. things that creep or crawl or skin lesions that creep or crawl in a spreading crawl. fashion. There you go. Okay. Both get the prefix herp. Yes. Second. Okay. What does the study say that if up to 90% of the population is infected with HSV1? Right, right. <laughs> why do only some people develop Alzheimer's? Right. And then the other part of it is like, why later on, right? Because herpes can go latent very early on in its life cycle. So, you know, there are actually lots of people who acquire HSV and they never even know because it goes latent almost immediately. So this was a model. Okay. So it it was looking at these cells and genes and proteins on a you know kind of microscopic scale. It isn't a perfect one-to-one correlation, and it isn't um, one of these studies that shows, oh, this is exactly what happens in the living human brain, but it is a huge step. So, Well, I imagine what- it also has a lot to do with how many copies of the virus there are, not just whether it's latent. Right, exactly. And so this is interesting because some of us can suppress HSV better, some of us can't, and this has to do with our immune system. And so HSV does start to amplify. Okay, that's what viruses do. They get into a cell and then hijack the cell's machinery in order to make copies of itself. So 
they went down this kind of step-by-step, Dr. Polanski and Dr. Goral, okay, in uh, the Center for Biology of Chronic Disease. And what they did is they started with number one, okay, copy number of HSV1 during latency uh, decreases the expression of a protein, which is really important for this kind of degradation, um, you know, that you're supposed to get when cell organelles die. Okay, so this is one of these things that we call autophagy, which means a cell eating itself, right? So it's one of those self-destructive pathways that we need. So now the copy number of HSV1 goes up, and this pathway gets, you know, dysregulated, okay? The other thing that they found is the copy number goes up, and now that there are a lot of expression of genes, and this not exactly sure 100% why, but the genes in the mitochondrial genome, enzymes that use oxygen to make energy and homeostasis to maintain the internal environment of the cell, you know, this gets screwed up. And now we have free radicals. Okay. These are, you know, little negatively charged things and then boom, boom, boom. To the exact opposite of what they sound like. Yeah, exactly. So they they literally, on a very tiny atomic level, they start ripping apart proteins and cell walls, and you have neuronal damage, and now you have uh, Alzheimer's disease. Um, Finally, again, increasing copy number of HSV uh, reduces the concentration of a NDMA receptor subunit. The receptor number goes down, okay, and now the 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 neurotrophic factor uh, which is supposed to be in there and allows one neuron to talk to another over that little synapse right that's all the brain is is these communicating neurons now okay this rebuilding we don't think of the brain as rebuilding but it's actually always kind of like you know refreshing all of these neurotransmitters and synapse and everything else like that now it gets dysregulated. You get now accumulation of amyloid beta, okay, which we classically see at the end stages of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and boom, you, you start to get neurodegeneration. And you start to hit the hippocampus, right, Josh? Really important for forming memories and, and keeping memories long-term. And this beautiful study just went from one hypothesis, you know, increase in the number of viruses that you have in a given cell, and then looking at the fallout that happens when you start increasing the copy number of HSV over time. And you start to get all of these effects which cascade and together may actually explain really well what happens in Alzheimer's disease. Now, is this the end-all be-all? You know, I I don't think so. There are still other factors. For instance, Josh, you probably know that if you have diabetes and hypertension, you also have a higher risk for uh, getting Alzheimer's later on in life, that whole metabolic syndrome that we try to fight against with diet and exercise, right? So this may just be one little component. And doing crosswords has a proven benefit of decreasing your risk of future Alzheimer's. (laughs) Also, it's doing regular crosswords, not just like once every couple months. You can't pop a crossword like a pill. So those with herpes or active herpes, should they get treated and therefore decrease their risk of potentially developing Alzheimer's? Or is that something the study can comment on? 
No, no, not yet. This is really, uh, you know, this was a model that was set up in order to examine this theory known as micro competition um, to actually, you know, increase artificially the copy number of HSV in a in a brain model and examine the downstream effects. So this is one way to show how you can model the progression of Alzheimer's disease. But we have a lot of steps before this kind of model can be correlated with what happens in a living person. And then Josh looking at, okay, is this something that we can target for treatment? So it's early, but the results are very, very telling in terms of how well they mimic um, the progression of what we think of as Alzheimer's on a cellular level. Fascinating. So what is our next story now that we've had a good healthy dose of uh, sex we'd rather forget, or at least (laughs) after effects of it? Mm, Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, this was using HSV-1, which is very classically associated with the cold sores on your lips rather than, you know, sexual transmission. (laughs) Rather than the sores on your genitals. Yeah, which exactly. is so HSV two. HSV two classically nowadays it's actually fairly interchangeable, but we in in a sense of this journal club we just got to first base. You know what I'm saying? We, now, we, Santosh, we didn't go why don't you take us all the way home with the next story? <laughs> Yeah, so we got Halloween, but we don't want to get off the spooky too fast, right? Because, you know, you got to slowly wean off the spooky. All right, this is going to get gross, but stick with me because it's also very, very funny. (laughs) So I want to tell you guys, you know when you go down a Wikipedia hole, This wasn't really a story. This was one of those that like up late at night clicking the random button on Wikipedia. I came across the words side by side, death erection. Okay. I <laughs> No, I, no, that's not yeah. <laughs> that is not how you presented the story. What? <laughs> Is it not how I presented it? I forgot how I, I, I thought that was my... You called me up mm. and you said, Josh, have you ever heard of angel lust? <laughs> oh, God. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> I'm trying I'm trying very hard <laughs> to, to not make it... And my first thought of what website you were on, I will... I will confess was not Wikipedia. This is not, okay. I'm not going to let you be like, you know, oh, what were you searching on the thing? Because honestly, this was like a stumbling upon kind of thing. Yes, Angel Lust, what the hell is that? And it redirected me to uh, uh, a death erection. This is a post-mortem erection, all right, that is actually fairly commonly observed in the corpses of men who've been executed specifically by the method of hanging. Very interestingly, okay, when you're talking about what happens in an erection, you've got blood flow going to the penis uh, all the time, just like to the rest of your organs to keep it nice and healthy, right? 
What happens is the venous return, okay, gets closed off by valves when the right stimulation is applied, okay? And now you have blood that's getting into the penis and just staying there. It's pooling, fills up the, uh, the uh, is it the corpus cavernosum? Indeed it is. Yes, the, ca- the corpus cavernosum, the spongy, uh, you know, uh, kind of beds of capillaries that are there, those all get filled up, it gets engorged, and now um, you have a piece of tissue that's just chock full of blood, like a, like a balloon, has a muscle running underneath us for us humans, for other animals, Josh, as you know, penis bone, correct? Yes? And then boom, it becomes erect. So very, very interesting. What we think happens goes here is the same type of phenomenon that happens when you have a spinal cord injury. When you have a spinal cord injury, you can sometimes get the same type of, you know, kind of, uh, what do you call it? Like constant stimulation to the signal that says close off those valves and you can get actually priapism. You can get, you know, permanent erection. And in this particular case... All right. Rather than in a living person where that can happen, you can have pressure placed on the cerebellum in the back of your head, uh, which is likewise important for sending some of these signals. And now you have a cerebellar or a spinal cord injury. And now, boom, uh, you get a flush of uh, you know the blood to the genitals when those venous valves close off and you get an erection. Are you at all familiar with the phrase, even mm. in passing, of well hung? Uh, <laughs> so you're talking about the euphemism well hung. Like, you know, he's got a, a, it's a large member, so to speak. Yes, yeah, somebody to to refer to somebody who has been blessed in genital endowments. Okay, all right, uh, but, yeah. Okay. But you've at least heard the phrase, you know, oh, such and such a person is well hung. That mm-hmm. okay. comes directly from this same phenomenon, because oh. <laughs> if your hangman, yeah, if your hangman who you were supposed to tip did their job well, when. Sure. When they dropped, the noose would snap your neck and you would have a very quick death from severing of the spinal cord. Yes. uh Uh-huh. Versus a slow death of strangulation uh, when the spinal cord isn't severed. If the spinal cord was severed and it was therefore a talented executioner, one of the ones who Mm -hmm. might have a fan club following, as we learned in our last episode, (laughs) then you could tell because the condemned would uh, demonstrate what they had, so to speak. (laughs) And therefore, they had been well hanged. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, All right. Now, we don't have visuals, but I want you all to close your eyes and imagine the more you know. (laughs) So, like, when when you're saying, like, if a person says, oh, that dude's well hung, you know, that kind of thing, it's it, it's actually a much more violent term than we're actually attributing it to in the, uh, the modern sense. Isn't language great? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord. Oh, my gosh. All right. What's our next story? 
<laughs> well, I mean, just before we go on to, you know, that weird etymology, I think it's already fairly. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Uh, obvious in this case why it has also been called angel lust. <laughs> Uh, so we got uh, we got from first base, and we we finished sex. So let's do drugs, Josh. How's that? Sounds yeah. fun. Oh yeah, I'll admit, okay. Santosh, I didn't think you had it in you. No, I, I really didn't. Now, so so I, what is your drug of choice? Uh, I mean, mine personally, Tylenol. Is, uh, ca- <laughs> it's it's video Excedrin. games and caffeine. Oh no, yeah, Red, yeah. It's it's Red Bull. No, no, it's, it's black coffee is pretty good. <laughs> Red Bull tastes so awful. Oh my God, there's one sponsorship gone, Josh. So, uh, <laughs> so what? Sorry. So what's this drug of choice that we're moving on to? Yeah, drug of choice. So we're in a really interesting time, especially here in the United States. Uh, legalization of marijuana, which allows not only for people to recreate or, or use it for actual medical reasons for things Did you like just pain say and recreate? Re- recreate? Yes. Yeah. That's that the word? verb. Oh. Yeah. All right. Carry on. <laughs> so uh, for recreational use, how about that? Uh, yeah. You're Googling recreate, aren't you? <laughs> Type, 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 type. No. <laughs> well, you're going to get mixed up in something because you might, I think it's spelled exactly the same as recreate, but yeah, it's a recreate. So yes, you can recreate, but you can also eventually, I'm hoping we can do proper research on it. What are you on? Shrooms? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not. It's really important because do you want to super- be. Oh, for the love of God. Yes, possibly. There, are you happy? I am. Thank you. <laughs> so tell us all, all right. about John Hopkins' new study. Absolutely. So in this day and age, we've got psilocybin making its rise right now as a very, very useful drug. That is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. And the use for things like anxiety, PTSD, and now actually, Josh, looking at its effect on tobacco addiction is the next step. And so Johns Hopkins Medicine was now awarded a grant from the NIH, and it's kind of opened the doors to start this kind of a research of a a drug that we usually think of as like, oh, this is, you know, a street drug or a bad thing to do, but genuinely trying to say, no, what are the good effects that we can have? So 
we had uh you know, nothing between, you know, 2006 and 2020 and just this dearth of knowledge where, you know, this, this potentially very useful medication is just going to waste. But right now this is going to be a multi-site three-year study. They're going to work with the university of Alabama at Birmingham, roll tide, New York university. And what they're going to do is try to get as many different types of people as possible and examine whether dosing with psilocybin can help people get off of cigarettes or combat tobacco addiction. I got to tell you, when I tell my patients to quit smoking, (laughs) the first thought that comes to mind is not, and take shrooms. (laughs) Although I imagine that improperly dosed yeah, yeah. It would definitely scare you off the idea of consuming or smoking anything <laughs> for a good long time. Well, I don't well, think that's what this trial is about. Yeah, but, yeah. But why don't you tell us more? <laughs> no, How's it, well, how is the study designed? <laughs> yeah. So we this actually goes back quite a ways. And so even 13 years ago you know, they were able to start this, these types of studies. They had a pilot study published in 2014 and showed really high abstinence rates when you used psilocybin to, uh, you know, get people off of tobacco. This one though is going to be a true double blind randomized trial. So one of the best therapies that we have right now for tobacco addiction is cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, where you actually kind of go through the thoughts that you have when you're leading up to an action to see if you can arrest those thoughts or actually catch a hold of them before you lose control, which is an important tipping point in addiction. So this is going to be, you know, one of the arms, okay? But in that arm, there's going to be, uh, you know, psilocybin given for one of these. And then for the other, they're going to, you know, get either a placebo or nothing. But the investigation. Well, I mean, they're still going to get the behavioral therapy. They're still going to get behavioral therapy, right? Because that's standard of care. So, um, they're not going to just give them a, sh- a shroom in a packet <laughs> like you're at a, What's this? A I don't know. I got it at the party. farmer's market. Yeah. No, no. They're actually going to have the psilocybin as a compound, as a medication, um, which is purified out of there. And um, they're going to have a, a, presumably a placebo arm and a psilocybin arm. And trying to find out uh, uh, whether or not that psilocybin really does significantly affect rates of abstinence, short-term and long-term, versus just using standard of therapy or standard of care. And this is super important. You know, we've struggled so long just because tobacco and nicotine are insanely addictive. Um, Some compare it to heroin. Some say nicotine is more addictive than heroin, depending on the model that you read. But, and we've tried everything under the sun and we have medications that we've tried and talk therapy. And for a good while, Josh, there was this 
path that we were walking down that you can use vaping as a bridge to abstinence, which is now completely out the window. It's just, no, it doesn't work. It's just bad for you, just like smoking is bad for you. So yeah, this big grant, this massive grant called a U01, which is one of the big collaborative grants, is going to be sent out by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is one of the National Institutes of Health. And uh, yeah, it'll go out principally to Johns Hopkins, these other centers. They're going to pool as many people as they can who are longtime smokers and try to get them unhooked. It's hard to be addicted to something that makes you visually hallucinate. Is that... <laughs> No, no, no. Okay. So just a little step back. <laughs> We're not going to have these people tripping balls in doctor's offices. Oh, okay. why do you just say no. they're microdosing? Yeah. Oh, oh, all right. Fine. Yeah. They're, <laughs> they're going to be using doses which are below the threshold of causing the. Would you call those issues. doses micro? Oh, go straight to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah anybody who wants to and maybe we can even post it on here this is one that I'm very happy to share Uh, you know you can go to to clinicaltrials.gov and actually look up the trial when it it starts going in and find where you can enroll um, if you think this is something that could help you because this is really really important because tobacco addiction is such a plague in around the world actually and let's be honest in today's world we could all use a trip yeah yeah we could so far you've covered sex drugs is it time to Mm. rock and roll let's rock and roll let's go metal what's the rock and roll story let's put pig hearts in people (laughs) i'll admit that's pretty metal yeah, let's put pig parts in people. I said pig hearts the first time. I'm sorry. Yes, let's let's rock out and go like Rodney James let's, Dio. Wait, 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 I've got one for this. Let's rock yeah, out yeah. with our hog out. Go yeah. <laughs> go whole hog on this story. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Let's let's hop on our hog and just ride right down the highway to hell. Absolutely. Yeah. Although in this case, it's like highway to you know, intact kidney function and, you know, getting off of dialysis, which is... So less of a highway (laughs) to hell and more of an entrance ramp to dialysis. Well, entrance ramp off dialysis. Oh, an exit ramp from dialysis. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Where you drive from there is totally up to you. What did we do with these pig parts that we were jamming into humans to a heavy metal soundtrack? (laughs) It wasn't like that. Never, never land. Okay, we're going to stick with Johns Hopkins, okay? And we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Dori Segev, who's a professor there, a professor of transplant surgery. And this gentleman was interviewed by the New York Times. He's not involved with this particular research, um, which was actually done at NYU. But no, 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 this, this was the interview that was, that was done with him to tell us why this was uh, really so important. So the surgery has been reported, but I couldn't find the uh, the technical paper on it. Essentially, Josh, we are really in a deficit of kidney donations, especially. And we know we can only live with one kidney, but we just have such a long waiting list for people who need kidneys. And um, you know, there's problems with them, you know, ranging from rejection to infection because of the immunosuppression. So we said, <clears throat> all right. 
what can we do to actually maybe even grow the organ somewhere? And ideally, you'd want to put it in a very sterile environment and this kind of a thing. But we know that we can actually use a living environment, in this case, an animal, a pig, which is the similar size to us, a very, very similar physiology in terms of cardiovascular system and renal system. And Josh, this is very interesting. You take the pig, okay, you genetically engineer it to grow an organ, which is unlikely to be rejected by the human body. Okay. So right now, this is something that you can't just go, like, I can't walk up to you and be like, Josh, I want to alter your genes so you could grow a kidney for me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Do we have that like, capability? Because no, <laughs> I can't. I can't do that. Or in this particular case, it would be growing the kidney specifically for a harvest. It's not like they grew an extra kidney. So you know, I, I, I hey, if but, you're having a kid, is it a yeah. nice bathtub? No, <laughs> it could be all marble and everything with uh, rose petals. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay. No, no. Th- this would be something to akin to, you know, because you're starting from the, the embryo. That that pig was grown for the sake of harvesting this particular kidney. All right. So you couldn't go straight into, you know, a regular human being for this. That would be completely unethical. All right. But after the harvest was done, Um, They consented the family of a person who was brain dead. And as you and I have talked about, Josh, before, brain death is death, right? You know, their heart's beating, they have working physiology, but there is zero function going on. But this becomes an ideal candidate to see if you can get the kidney to work, okay, in a living system and not be rejected right out. but you're really not harming that human being because the, the, the person is dead uh, for all intents and purposes. So this was what was done. You, uh, you get the pig, you genetically engineer your pig to grow this kidney that has a low rejection kind of profile, okay, in terms of its immunology. Took it out. Okay, hooked it up to one of the uh, the arteries, which actually uh, serve the leg. So you know, uh, either the iliac or femoral artery, and you know, just said, "All right, let's see if it starts filtering." Okay, and beautifully, Josh, what happens is when a kidney is perfused in a transplant recipient, it starts working really, really fast. Okay, so uh, and you'll absolutely love this. <laughs> So uh, one of the other commenters in this article said that this surgery was a watershed moment. This is xenotransplantation. They were able to keep the kidney working in there. There was no immediate rejection. Uh, And actually, Josh, they tracked the results for 54 hours. And this kidney- Just over two days. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were able to keep this, you know, this kidney working and it, this person got a Xeno transplant and it worked. It did what it was supposed to do and it was not rejected. So that's really, really amazing. It is a new step 
in the history of xenotransplantation, which actually does go back, Josh, several decades. So it was mentioned in this article, 1960s chimpanzee kidneys were transplanted into a small number of patients. Most of them died because this type of cross-species work, unless you have the tools that we have today for genetic modification, you know, our bodies don't accept it very well at all. We start fighting it like a foreign object. Now, we have avascular organs, which we transplant in. So for instance, valves, right? So bovine and porcine valves are used because there's really no tissue there that's immunogenic. All right. But this is really the first like whole working organ um, that has gone in and, you know, stuck for this long uh, to to work uh, in a human being. So this is a first step. They got the urine output to work. They got a good creatinine output when they, you know, kind of shut off the other kidneys and just let the transplanted kidney do the work. There wasn't any kind of incompatibility. But for the sake of ethics, because, you know, this person that was transplanted into was brain dead, and this was a very generous kind of donation of, um, you know, the, this person by the family, by the, by the person as an organ donor. Um, the, and before the, everybody starts screaming about, you know, yeah. ethical treatment of animals and yeah, you can't oh, that, raise yeah. them just to harvest for parts, we routinely, routinely use pig yeah. heart valves right. in humans. <laughs> yeah. And uh, diabetic patients get pig pancreas cells, burn patients get pig skin grafts. So mm-hmm. this is not an entirely new frontier. Right. Yeah, yeah. This is just and, a different way of using every part of the animal. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, heaven knows, like, you know, could this be part of, all right, well, there are pork farms. And then, by the way, you know, Farmer Joe, while you're raising these pigs, do you mind raising this particular <laughs> Farmer Joe gives you both the bacon for the best burger you've ever had and then the new heart you need to replace it. There you go. And, you know, and for the future, who knows? Lungs, kidneys, liver, you know, this kind of thing where, you know, we really can, uh, you know, transplant people. Now, ultimately, I'm with most of the people who are talking about ethical treatment, that this might be yet another bridge where we talk about actually growing the organs in, you know, like a test tube or, you know, a big cylinder like that. So you don't have to sacrifice an animal. That would be the best. Absolutely. But this type of experiment showing that it can work and showing that you don't get rejection, especially in that short term and that it, the, the kidney physiologically works. That's amazing. Okay. It's totally but awesome. you're leaving out what I think is a pretty significant detail. Dr. Montgomery and his team also transplanted the pig's thymus, which is a gland involved in the immune system in mm-hmm. hopes that the pig's immune system would confuse the human immune system and ward off immune reactions to the kidney. So there is yeah. a potential <laughs> confounding organ at play here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's... Really that's... throws a pipe into the plants. <laughs> A well, pipe from not, organ, you might say. Not necessarily. The thymus is a big, you know, shield-shaped organ, uh, which sits, you know, right in front of the heart in your chest, or in the pig's chest in this case. And there is enough of it to go around if you're harvesting organs out of this pig. And so this could be a routine practice. Um, but yes, that and the genetic engineering that 
causes a knockout of an antigen, a, a sugar antigen that sits on the cell surface of the kidneys so that it's not recognized as a, as a foreign organ. You know, yes, these are, these are important <laughs> things to do. And, uh, you know, that may be part of the transplant in the future. So the next step genuinely, Josh, is to see from an ethical standpoint, if we can say, can we use, you know, pig donor, a living recipient, um, who and we can actually watch for long-term rejection over days, weeks, months, years, and see if this is a viable option. We're not going to see pig organs be transplanted into humans anytime soon. No. Uh, yeah. But there is a pretty big lack of organs across the board, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So if you have not registered as an organ donor, please consider yes. it. And... If you have had COVID-19 and you are wondering, yes, you can still donate your organs. So from a high level, COVID-19 is no different than any other disease or illness that they evaluate potential donors for at the time of death. Yeah, as far as we know, foods. it is not transmitted you know, post-mortem or it doesn't carry around latent in an organ such as you might see with hepatitis C that likes to hide right. in the liver. Or mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. BK virus that hides in the kidneys, things like that. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, if they have an active COVID nineteen infection at the time, maybe some transplant right. centers have started accepting COVID positive donor organs in individuals who have no active symptoms. So yeah, yeah. So as in after you've kind of finished your quarantine period and that kind of a thing. And as far as we know, and I know Josh, we've talked about this. There probably isn't a high level of viremia <laughs> in the actual bloodstream. And so especially after you're better, um, you've probably cleared everything that you need to uh, in order to uh, safely donate that organ to whoever needs it. And yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, if you want to do bone marrow, you can do be the match. And otherwise, you go to your local DMV. And when you're getting your driver's license, that's it. You just say, yep, put a, put a yes next to organ donor, and that's it. So that's, on that cheery note. <laughs> Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, Josh. It was a lot of fun. That's it for this week. As always, yeah. we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. Mm. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. And until next time, as always, wash your hands, wear a mask, get your shot, find somewhere to go that's open to people who have done all those things. And then, happy travels. Bye, guys. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.